1: 355 years ago, this month, in 1667, a 27-year-old man called Samuel Simmons printed a very important book. As Simmons had fairly recently inherited his printing business on Aldersgate Street, this was the first book Simmons entered into the stationer's register with his own name as the imprint. And what a book it would turn out to be. For Simmons was printing none other than Paradise Lost by John Milton. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be? All but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. The story of the writing and publishing of Paradise Lost, one of the greatest epic poems in the English language, is fascinating. The poem's author was a man who came to the fore of radical politics and for a time later became an enemy of the state. This great poem was produced as his dream of a godly republic became reality and then crumbled, and as he himself turned blind, experienced the deaths of his wife and only son and wrote with three young children to care for. Here to tell us about John Milton and the story of the writing and publishing of Paradise Lost Is Thomas Corns, Emeritus Professor of English at Bangor University. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a fellow of the British Academy. He's published many books on Milton, including the Milton Encyclopedia and John Milton, Life, Work and Thought, which he co-wrote with Professor Gordon Campbell. Professor Corns, thank you so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. We've got a lot to get through, but let's begin by thinking about London and Milton in the late 1660s. Why was publishing anything in 1667 a feat in itself?
0: That's because of the fire of London in 1666. The publishing industry in the late 17th century was almost entirely based on London, and the fire of London devastated that industry. There were publishers, there were booksellers and printers outside the area of devastation. The actual rather unusual format in which Paradise Lost was distributed very much reflects the devastation of the previous year. The text was printed by Samuel Simmons, who was outside the area of devastation. So he had paper stock, he had his presses, we think. But he distributed through a consortia of booksellers, some of whom were just outside the area of devastation, but some of whom had actually had their business more or less wiped out and were operating from kind of pop-up shops in the area outside the zone of the fire. It's quite unusual for a text of this sort to be distributed through a bookseller's consortium, and the likeliest reasons are that they were drawing down relatively small numbers of units, reflecting cost flow problems consequent upon the devastation they've achieved, and just trying to keep the business going, build up some stock to sell after what had gone before.
1: That's interesting. So it's a response to the crisis in terms of how it's distributed and published. I suppose we ought to, however, think a bit earlier, because whilst the poem was published in 1667, your research shows that Milton may well have been writing Paradise Lost, much earlier during the English Civil War or the War of Three Kingdoms, continuing through the Regicide, the Republic, the Restoration. And obviously, this is an extraordinary period of history. What was Milton doing during these years, in addition to writing his epic poem?
0: We do find early sketches for drama based on religious themes, which we can date probably to the very late 1630s, very early 1640s. And one of those sketches is actually a scenario that contains more or less in the same order some of the events that are later depicted in Paradise Lost. So it's reasonable to think of Milton pondering how you write creative writing around the biblical theme of the fall of Adam and Eve. So what was he doing from 1638, 1640 on? He'd come back from a longest trip to Italy He came back to London and from the early 1640s involved himself in the kind of Puritan reaction to the ceremonialism and the church government through bishops that was such an important theme among the supporters of Parliament in the early 1640s. However, in the context of a marriage that had gone a bit sour, he found himself then starting to take rather a controversial position on the issue of divorce. He is a very early advocate of divorce for reasons other than sexual incompetence or sexual incompatibility. And then he becomes a target for, as it were, the more conservative elements within English Puritanism. He fights a brief and unsuccessful campaigner advocating limited freedom of the press for silent. And then in 1649 he gets hired and made a figure in the defence of the regicide. That comes in the context of being as a fairly senior civil servant within the successive regimes of the late 1640s and through the 1650s. He remains in that capacity through those years, writing English and Latin defences, but at the same time translating diplomatic correspondence and sometimes acting as a simultaneous translator for the reception of ambassadors.
1: And so what happened to him at the time of the Restoration?
0: He was briefly imprisoned and he was initially accepted from the settlement that allowed people not to be prosecuted. So for a little while it looked a bit shaky. He wasn't responsible for killing the king. He was responsible for justifying the killing of the king. And people of that kind of category by and large caught off reasonably lightly. He was incarcerated briefly in the Tower of London, but not for very long. And quite what terms he got out on are a little vague, but he does give an undertaking as to his own future. But he is, in 1660, a marked man in the sense that he has to be careful. He changes his dwelling place to somewhere further away from where there are likely to be royalist Bravos. He had a kind of fear of assassination, but he survived
1: so we get the sense that he was a fairly devoted spokesperson for republicanism as we come up to the publication of Paradise Lost. As far as it is possible with an epic of over 10,000 lines, can you outline the story for us?
0: It's a massive reworking of the book of Genesis. If you read those early books, those first three books of Genesis, Satan doesn't appear. Quite why Adam and Eve do what they do? Wholly mysterious. Milton is utterly uninhibited about providing motivations, and weaving Satan into the narrative. So it's about the early eating of the apple and the expulsion from paradise. It's also about later books of Genesis, right through to the flood and beyond, in which we have potted narratives based on the events described in the early history of the biblical events. And the interesting thing about those is that they are subtly flavoured with a kind of tincture of republicanism. When kings are depicted, kings by and large are not depicted very sympathetic. And then there's a very abbreviated vision of what happens later, which touches upon the atonement occasioned by the incarnation and sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, and looking forward to the second coming, the last judgment, and the kind of retributions that might well be dealt out to those who have been persecutors of the godly. And it ends, interestingly, on a note that it's really short-term pessimism. Things are not going to get any better very soon, but long-term optimism, even if it means waiting until the second coming of Christ, there will be an appropriate ending for the God.
1: And there will be judgment, which, of course, means justice. We always think of it as a bad thing, but actually intended to be a good thing. Let's talk about ideas, first of all. What are the sort of ideas and themes that you think that Milton is exploring in this poem?
0: He sets himself the major task of justifying the ways of God to man, explaining how it's, in some respects, fair enough that all this misery comes upon the world as a result of actions of remote forebearers. So that is inevitably an important part of it. But there are other things that go on along the way. Among those are heterodox theological ideas, which are much plainer if you look at his Latin thesis, which was not published in his lifetime. Heterodox ideas, particularly about the relationship between the Messiah. The Son of God and God the Father, in which develops our anti-Trinitarian position. If it was spelled out as clearly in the poem as it was spelled out in the Latin treatise, then that would have been, I think, problematic within the reception of the text. But it's subtle, it's opaque. But there are other issues as well. There are explorations of the relationship between men and women. There is a sort of dramatization of the relationship between Adam and Eve that has the kind of interiority, kind of exploration of the dynamics of interpersonal relationship. You would expect mature Shakespeare tragedy.
1: And I suppose you'd expect from someone who's written about divorce being justifiable when a couple don't get along, as he didn't with his wife. And I suppose the other thing to ask about is whether you see it as a political poem in the end, given that he'd supported republicanism. Is it a lament for the failure of the Commonwealth? Why do you think he's writing it?
0: There are four books that have a kind of prologue to them. And it's in those parts of the poem that he talks about explicitly about his own experience and his own experience is one of being blind and surrounded by enemies in the context of political eclipse and that is very emphatically felt there I think yes it is a political poem I don't think he would have written the way he wrote if he hadn't actually been a political insider about the interactions for example within the political institutions depicted in Paradise Lost that show the kind of guile and judgment that he would have seen hanging around the senior civil service of the Cromwellian ascendancy, Similarly, the scene set in hell. Satan and his sidekick Beelzebub play in a very politic kind of way. They manipulate them in a very politic kind of way. This is a man who's seen high politics from close to.
1: Let's also think about it as poetry. The editor of my edition is Roy Flanagan. He says, Milton does for poetry what Michelangelo did for painting. What did it mean to write blank verse in this sort of age of rhyming couplets?
0: If you bought the book in 1667, opened the verso of the title page, and you would see the first page of the poem. A uh, shocking experience in a way. There's no kind of meta-text between the title page and the text. Huge sentences of blank verse at the very beginning of the poem. The printer, in subsequent issues, as he changed the title page with different consortia, starts Putting material in there. And one of the things he tells the reader he's done is he's persuaded the author to supply an explanation of the blank verse of what it's about. And that's fine because Milton has a very comfortable way of dealing with that. He can point to classical antecedents. Virgil does not rhyme. And he can also point to the experience of our better dramatists, particularly Shakespeare and Johnson. And the idea of writing unrhymed verse in 10 syllable lines is not without precedent, but it is. As you suggest by your question, against the grain of the way in which Restoration prosody is developing, it is the age of Dryden as much as the age of Milton. What he manages to do with the blank verse is really very clever. It does two things, because he does not have to meet the exigencies of rhyme. He can generate sentences of the kind of size that were commonplace in his own prose and in other learned prose of the time, actually without precedent in the context of poetry. And the second thing he does is that he has a huge range of variation in terms of the iambic meter, but he pulls it back together by the insertion periodically of wholly regular iambic lines that demonstrate this isn't prose, this is poetry. Those clever little techniques he uses to pull those rhythmical variants, very like the rhythmical variants that you find in true Shakespeare, back to the underlying paradigm of iambic pentameter.
1: So I suppose it allows him to convey real complexity of ideas because he can have these long sentences, these things that are thought through.
0: That is absolutely right. It allows the expression of complex ideas. But the other thing it allows is it allows debates of a high rhetorical kind. Characters within the poem engage in complex debates and serious arguments as characters talk to characters. So indeed so.
1: I'm struck by the paradox, even dissonance, of Milton, this classical scholar who'd written correspondence for the state in Latin for 11 years, choosing to write a classical form, the form of Homer or whatever, but he's writing it in English about a Christian narrative. What did it mean to write an epic in the vernacular about this theme?
0: There are two issues there that we can perhaps separate. There is a section of the Milton However that is Latin, but it's a very minor part really in the context of all his writing. second point is that I don't think he would have considered writing in Latin. He's an advocate of the English vernacular poetry from really quite an early point in his career. Hail native tongue, he writes at one point. He is aware that in some respects English is the poor relative compared with Italian vernacular poetry, with which he was very familiar. And It's part of his agenda, really, to assert the parity or even the supremacy of English vernacular as a kind of coming of age of English literary culture. But as for the Christian thing, that is a really fascinating point in that intermittently within the poem, he asserts that his poem transcends the achievement of the Italian epic tradition and transcends the achievement of Homer and Virgil because it is a Christian poem. Intermittently, there are sections which quite closely almost parody passages from the Italian aid and the classical Greek and Latin epics, asserting that this is not a fable. This is it. This is the truth. This is how the world is made. This is how the world will end. These are the processes that a godly, wayfaring Christian must go through it to achieve that ultimate objective.
1: One thing one often hears being said about Paradise Lost, though, is that Satan, the arch fiend, is the hero. What do you make of that claim?
0: There was an argument developed, particularly associated with Stanley Fish, and that is the poem invites misinterpretation, that the reader is presented in the first two books the heroic sake in an engaging way such that the delusion of his heroic suffering is briefly entertained by the reader only to be shown to be a no real friend to humankind I can see how you can read those first two books in a way that is appreciative of heroic Satan. And I think those first two books do invite that misinterpretation. But it's pretty evident by the time you read book three that it is a misinterpretation.
1: Yes, and if we were to get it wrong, we kind of invert the meaning of the poem or the intention of it.
0: did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect join me betwixt the sheets the history of sex scandal in society a new podcast from history hit where i kate lister ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school or sex ed We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your
0: style game without blowing your budget? wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now, you've mentioned that Milton experienced much personal loss, loss of his sight, for example. There's also the loss, of course, of members of his family whilst he was writing this. Do you think those losses are reflected in his writing?
0: Why is it then that the world is unrelentingly hostile to the godly and so unrelentingly profitable to the wicked? Why has Charles II come back, ridden into London, massive procession dripping with gold braid and bejeweled horse trappings and things? That's absolutely at the heart of the poem. And it's right because, on his account, the world is a place that tests the wayfaring Christian. It's by trial that the wayfaring Christian achieves his salvation and their distinction. It's quite a brutal take on Christianity.
1: That's such a vivid image you've created for us of the reality of what it must have felt like if you were one of the godly, one of those that we refer to rather disparagingly as Puritan, who had seen this great experiment carried off as far as they're concerned, this new world, and then seen it completely demolished within a generation. It must have been utterly shocking, and they must have really struggled to make sense of it.
0: When the game is already lost, Milton is still writing and then rewriting a pamphlet, ready and easy way to establish a free commonwealth, writing that pamphlet almost on the eve of the return of Charles II. And he keeps going in a way that he recognises may well actually not work, but not only not work, might also, of course, get him a bit higher up the list of people for whom retribution is coming. He ends with a kind of myad in which he calls upon the English people to recognise that they are throwing over this glorious thing that was paid for with blood and gold.
1: Given that he has these extraordinary ideas in it, potentially seditious ideas, and despite the fact that he's previously written about the freedom of the press or at least wanted to prevent censorship, things that were published did very much have to go through a process of being reviewed in advance and then licensed by the censors of the stationer's company. So how was Samuel Simmons able to publish it then in 1667?
0: I think there's a misconception we have about how the press was controlled When we think of censorship, I suppose we think of the kinds of censorship that would characterise the age of Stalin. There are no gulags in 17th century England for people who write unpopular creative writing. His fate will not be the fate of Solzhenitsyn. It's not how it worked. The press was quite fiercely controlled, but there's certain categories of literature that particularly interested the press controllers right from the late Elizabethan period right through to the end of the 17th century. And creative writing was not one of the categories. That did attract very much by way of the state suppression. In the 1640s, royalist writers, Robert Herrick, and Richard Lovelace, published collections of verse that are fiercely loyal to Charles I. Lovelace has a little bit of difficulty getting his out, but he gets it out, and Herrick gets it out seemingly without any particular problem. That's not what they were trying to control. They were trying to control seditious literature calling people to arms. And they were trying to control seditious literature that was explicitly critical of the royal family. And if you didn't do any of those things, then the censor wasn't all that interested in you, frankly. 1,300 people reading Paradise Lost does not constitute the making of a counter-restoration
1: That's so interesting because the period I work on chiefly, which is a century or so earlier, there's much more sort of careful scrutiny of particular words that people have said and whether they fall under the Treasons Act. So it feels like there's more scope for getting away with things at this point if it's creatively done. So let's think about who his reading public were then, and do we know who they were, what they thought of it?
0: Very interesting question. Within the text, Milton tries to identify his reading public. He seeks to address a fit audience, though few, by which interpreters normally think he's talking about speaking to the godly, really, which is an entirely reasonable assumption to make. But the book does go through three editions in 12 years, each of 1,500 copies. 1500 is a large print run by the standards of the 1660s, 1670s. It is already establishing itself as a very significant text. What happens after that, though, is really fascinating in that as the sort of storm over Milton's notoriety fades into the background, you find a widening of the reading public for it. And it's a fascinating example of how English literary culture as a kind of consumer culture really starts to develop, you get the first illustrated, Milton, the grand folio, a subscription publication, The Great and Good, Undertake to Buy Copies, the names are printed in a list at the back, and they include people who are actually supporters of Charles I and supporters of the Restoration, supporters of Charles II. Then you get the first annotated edition. Again, it's a separate publication that you read alongside one of these grand folio editions. Then you get the popular editions coming out. Pocket size editions. And you get in the early 18th century, the spectator periodical written by the Whig Addison and Richard Steele massively extending the range of people who would know about Paradise Lost, even if they were only reading the snippets of Paradise Lost that Addison includes in the 18 essays that he writes in it. Suddenly, Paradise Lost has become a kind of threshold that the cultured must pass in order to pass as a culture. And it's a transformation, really, that's part of the building of the English literary tradition and even the concept of a readership for creative writing.
1: Beyond it being very good, because that alone is not necessarily enough to make it popular, why do you think that happens?
0: It requires a slightly complex answer. Part of the reason it happens is that there is an increase in the literacy of the population over the 17th century, quite a steep curve upwards. But something else happens, a kind of reconfiguration of the political religious ideology of the Restoration period. Being Protestant suddenly seems something that covers a large spectrum and can include people like Milton. It can include the Presbyterians, it can include Baptists, it can include just about include Quakers. It's being Protestant that matters, as distinct to being Catholic. Milton, I think, gains from the kind of wave of anti-Catholic sentiment that sweeps the country after the fire of London. And that wave continues with the accession of James II, And England is not divided between supporters of Parliament, supporters of the monarchy anymore. England is now divided between Protestants and Catholics. And I think Milton's poem then emerges as the kind of iconic poem of English Protestantism.
1: There is so much that Milton produces during his lifetime. This is a huge work, but one of many. I get the impression, at least, that he's this incredibly driven, passionate, ideological person. How would you characterise him? you spent a lot of time with this man. (laughs) And what do you make of him?
0: He's a man very conscious of his own merit. I will say that he is a person who perceives and represents himself persistently as a dynamic, creative person, a creative writer. Even when there are curious kind of gaps in that self-representation and self-fashioning, he doesn't actually publish very much poetry before Paradise Lost. Publishes a collection of early verses. Before that, in a prose work, he has, in a side, been talking about how he readers want to be writing all this prose, how he really is a poet who's been obliged to do it. But then for 22 years after 1645, he doesn't really publish any poetry, not really anything very significant. Extraordinary, and yet he still thinks of himself as a poet who has been obliged to defend the political interest that he has decided to champion. It's a curious mixture of the image of himself that he holds and projects, and the way his career actually developed. He was also, I think, very good at carrying on. I mean, after he was blind, he can still hold down a senior civil service post. He can still write, in the defence of the state, major Latin texts, very close computations of a Latin texts that are attacking the state. He builds around him a support network. Puritan grandees send their children to sit at his feet and read to him, and take notes for him. He was a rich man's son, and though he lost quite a lot in 1660, he was never a poor man. He had a competence that meant he could do more or less what he wanted to do. Indeed, when he was working for the state, he seemed to have invested, foolishly as it turned out, most of his income from that, which is not a small income, back into government bond, which of course were then worthless in 1660. But he was a practical man in many ways. And as it happens, also the most extraordinary narrative poet in the English literature tradition. But for which I don't think we'd be having this conversation now.
1: Well, that's actually the final question I want to pose to you, which is... Given that he's so much a product of his age, that he's responding to religious and political debates and questions of his period, why do you think he continues to fascinate us today?
0: I think there's an easy way to answer that and say, well, look, if you look at most of the issues he talked about, he's actually on the side of the angel. He's in favour of the accountability of government to the people. He's more or less in favour of free press. He's more or less in favour of approach to issues relating to human sexuality and the institution of marriage. You can defend him in those terms. You can defend him as someone who plainly has had an influence upon the people who wrote the American Constitution. You can build that defence. But that's not the way I would answer that question. If you want a founding father of liberal thought, then you could go to Locke, who is actually a better political philosopher than Milton, actually. If you want profound, radical vision, you could go to Gerard Wynne Stanley, the digger leader, who has a kind of perception of how society works that actually transcends Milton's perception of how society works. The defence, really, for Milton is in the major poetry, in Paradise Lost, preeminently, but also in to a lesser extent in Samsung and Paradise Regained. It's because it is an extraordinary, powerful, intelligent, imaginative, visionary, eloquent product that absolutely shapes the direction of the English literary tradition. This brings in the triumph of neoclassicism. Its influence resonates through the 18th century. And without it, Wordsworth or Shelley or Keats would not have written as Wordsworth. Shelley and Keats wrote.
1: So if a listener hasn't picked up Paradise Lost, has perhaps been daunted by it, What would you say to encourage them or what tips would you give them to engage with this poem?
0: It's not my tip, but it's a good tip and it comes from Philip Pullman. Pullman is, of course, a huge fan of Milton and he wrote a foreword to a rather attractive kind of presentation, edition of Paradise Lost and basically says, just read it like a novel. Just start, go through, read it, then read some secondary material and then you can read it again better. But just read it, keep going.
1: So there you have your challenge for today, listeners. Professor Corns, thank you so much for this lovely introduction to Milton. I feel like I would like to keep talking with you for hours about his work, but this has been a delightful dip into his thought and his writing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com.